Chapter Seven of Brood of the Dark Moon by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Red Swarm. It was a matter of a half hour later when Harkness ordered them all outside. He had accepted Kreiss as an addition to their ranks and had made himself plain to Schwartzmann. To the scientist, he said, you remarked that no ship could hold two command pilots. That goes for an expedition like this, too. I am in command. If you will take orders, we will be mighty glad to have you with us. And to Schwartzmann, in a different tone, I am sparing you and your men. I ought to shoot you down, but I won't, and I don't expect you to understand why. Any decency such as that would be beyond you. But I am letting you live. This world is big enough to hold us both, and pretty soon I will tell you what part of it you can live in. And then remember this one thing, Schwartzmann. Get this straight. You keep out of my way. I will show you a valley where you and your men can stay. And if you ever leave that valley, I will hunt you down, as I would one of the beasts that you will see in this world. Chet had to repress a little smile that was twitching at his lips. It always amused him hugely to see Harkness when roused. "'Turn us out to starve?' Schwartzmann was demanding. "'You would do that?' "'There will be food there,' said Harkness curtly. "'Suit yourself about starving. Only stay where I put you.' Back of the others of Schwartzmann's men, the pilot, Max, was stooping. Half hidden, he moved toward the doorway to the rear cabin and to the storage room and gun rooms beyond. Chet glimpsed him in his silent retreat. "'I wouldn't do that if I were you, Max,' he advised quietly. "'Personally, I think you're all getting off too well. As for myself, I'm sort of itching for an excuse to let off this gun.' It was here that Harkness turned to the open port. "'Put them out,' he snapped. "'You, Chet, go out first and line them up as they come. But no, wait. There may be gas out there.' Chet was beside the port. A breath from outside came to him, sweetly fragrant. A shadow was moving across the smooth lava rock. A bird, he thought. Then a flash of red in startling vividness swept past the open door. It was like a quick flicker of living flame. He could not see what it was, but it was alive, and this answered his question. "'Send him along,' he said. "'It seems all right now.' He stepped through the opening in the heavily insulated walls. It was early morning, yet the sun was already hot upon the smooth expanse of the lava flow. Some ancient eruption from the distant peaks that hemmed in the valley had sent out this flood of molten rock. It was hard and black now, but to the right, where the valley went on and up, and rose gently and widened as it rose, a myriad of red flames and jets of steam told of the inner fires that still raged. These were the fumaroles where only a month before he and Harkness and Diane had found clustering savages who were more apes than men. They had been roasting meat at these flames, and below, where the lava stopped, was the open glade where the little stream splashed and sparkled. In the high rock walls that hemmed the glade, the caves showed black and beyond the open ground was the weird forest 
where tree trunks of ghostly white were laced with a network of red veining. They grew close, those spectral columns, in a shadow world beneath the high roof of the greenery they supported. Here was the scene of an earlier adventure. Chet was swept up in the flood of recollections born of familiar sights and scents. Herr Schwartzmann, cursing steadily in a guttural tongue, came from the ship to bring Chet's thoughts back to the more immediate problem. There were five others who followed, the pilot and Schwartzmann's four men. There had been another, but his body lay huddled upon the bare lava. He had followed his master far and here. For him was the end. Kreiss's pistol was still in his hand as he came after. Harkness and Diane were last. Harkness pointed with his gun. Over there, he ordered. Get them away from the ship, Chet. Line them up down below there. All the ape-men have cleared out since we had our last fight. Get them down by the stream. Diane and I will bring them some supplies, and then we can send them off for good. Chet sent Kreiss down first where an easy slope made the descent a simple matter. It had been the bow wave of the molten lava. Here was the end of that inundation of another age, and the slope was wrinkled and creased. Schwartzmann followed, then the others. The last man was ready to descend when Diane and Walt came back. They had packages of compressed food. This was all right with Chet, but he raised his eyebrows inquiringly at the sight of several boxes of ammunition and an extra gun. Harkness smiled good-naturedly. "'I will give them one pistol,' Walt told him, "'and a good supply of shells. "'We don't need to be afraid of them with only one gun, "'and we can't leave the poor devils at the mercy of every wild beast.' "'You're the boss,' said Chet briefly, "'but for me I'd sooner give this Schwartzman just one bullet right where it would do the most good. Let's make him work for it, he suggested, and called to the men below. Come back up here, Schwartzman, a little present for you, and I'm saying you don't deserve it. He watched the return trip as Schwartzman dragged his heavy bulk up the slope. He was enjoying the man's explosive, panted curses. Beside him were Diane and Walt. With them, it was as it had been with him at first. They had eyes only for the familiar ground below, the stream, the open ground, the trees. Each of them was looking down at that lower ground. It was Kreiss standing down there who first caught Chet's attention. Kreiss was trying to shout. Chet saw his waving arms. He stared, puzzled, at the facial contortions, the working lips, from which no sound came. He knew that something was wrong. It was a moment or two before he realized that Kreiss could not speak, that the throat, injured by the choking fumes, had failed him. Then he heard the strangled croak that Kreiss forced from his lips. Behind you! Look behind you! Schwartzman was scrambling to the top where they stood. Every man was accounted for. What had they to fear? and suddenly it was borne in upon Chet's consciousness that he had been hearing a sound, a sound that was louder now, a rustling, a clashing of dry, rasping things. The very air seemed to hold something ominous. He knew this in the instant 
while he whirled about, while he heard the dry rustling change to a humming roar, while he saw, like a cloud of flame, a great swarm of red, flying things like the one that had flown past the port, and one, swifter than the rest, that darted from the swarm and flashed upon him. It was red, vividly, dazzlingly red, the body of a reptile, a wild phantasm of distorted dreams, was supported by short, quivering wings. The body was some five feet in length, and it was translucent. A shell, like the dried husk of some creature long dead, yet here was something alive, as its quick attack proved. It had a head of dry scales, which ended in a projecting, black-tipped beak that came like a sword, straight and true, for Chet's heart. It seemed an age before he could bring his pistol up and fire. Detonite, as everyone knows, does not explode on impact. The cap of fulminate in the end of each bullet sets it off. But even this requires some resistance, something more than a dry red husk to check the bullet's flight. There was no explosion from the tiny shell that Chet's pistol fired, but the bullet did its work. The creature fell plunging to the rocky ground, and its transparent wings sent flurries of dust where they beat upon the ground. There were others that went down, for the bullet had gone on and through the great swarm. And then they attacked. The very fury of the assault saved the huddle of humans. So close were the red things pressed together that their vibrating wings beat and locked the swarm into a mass. They were almost above their prey. Chet knew that he was firing upward into the swarm, but the sound of his pistol was lost. The red cloud hung poised in a whirling maelstrom, and the pandemonium of clashing wings whipped down to them not only the sound of their dry scraping, but a stench from those reptile bodies that was overpowering. Sickly sweet, the taste of it was in Chet's mouth. The sound of the furious swarm was battering at his ears, as he knew that his pistol was empty. There were red bodies on the bare rocks before him. A scaly, scabrous thing was pressing against his upflung hands that he raised above his head. A loathsome touch, a beak that was a needle-pointed tube, stabbed at his shoulder. Before he could flinch aside, the quick pain of it was piercingly sharp. Other red horrors dropped from the main mass overhead. He saw Harkness beating at them wildly while he made a shelter of his body above the crouched figure of Diane. Two of them, two incredible, beastly flying things. He saw them so plainly where they hovered and Harkness striking at them with a useless empty gun while they waited to drive home their lance-like beaks. The picture was so plain. His brain was a photographic plate, supersensitized by the utter horror of the moment. While the red monster stabbed its beak into his shoulder, while he drove home one blow against its parchment body with his empty pistol, while the wild, beating wings lifted the creature again into the air, he saw it all. Here were Diane and Harkness. Nearby Schwartzman was on the ground. His man, the one who had not yet descended with the others, 
was running stumblingly forward. He was wounded, and the blood was streaming from his back. Chet saw the two monsters hovering above Harkness's head. He saw their thick-lidded eyes, and he saw those eyes as they detected an easier prey. The fleeing man was half-stooped in a shambling run. The winged reptile Chet had beaten off joined the other two, and they were upon the wounded man in a flurry of red. Chet saw him go down and took one involuntary step forward to give him aid, then stopped, transfixed by what he beheld. The man was crouching down in terror. Above him, the three monstrous things beat each other with their wings, then their long beaks stabbed downward. The man's body was hidden, but through those transparent beaks there mounted swiftly a red stream. Plainly visible, Chet saw that vital current, that living lifeblood of a living man, drawn into those beastly bodies. He saw it spread through a network of canals. And he was held rigid with horror until a harsh scream from Harkness reached his brain. The trees, Harkness was shouting, the trees. Down, Chet. For God's sakes, you can't save him. Walt was half-carrying Diane. Even then, Chet was vaguely thankful that their bodies were between the girl and this gruesome sight, and Walt was leaping madly down the lava slope. Beyond him, already on the lower level, was the racing figure of Schwartzmann. A whirling flash of red pursued him. Another made a crimson streak through the air toward Walt's back. Chet came with startling abruptness from the frozen rigidity that held him, and he crashed his empty pistol in a well-directed aim through the body of the beast. Then he, too, threw himself in great leaps down the slope. Kreiss was firing from below. Chet knew dimly that this was checking the attack of the swarm. He saw Walt stagger, saw blood flowing from a slash on the back of his head, and knew that Kreiss had got the monster just in time. He sprang toward the stumbling man and got his arms under the unconscious figure of the girl to help carry the load. And now it was Kreiss who was shouting, The trees will be safe in the trees. He saw Kreiss drop his pistol and dash headlong for the white trunks of ghostly trees. His arm was pierced by a stinging pain, cold eyes with thick leathery lids were staring into Chet's as he cast one horrified glance over his shoulder. Then he crashed against the white trunk of a tree and helped Harkness drag the body of the girl between the two twin trunks. He pulled himself to safety in the shelter of the protecting trees and held weakly to one of them. And the crimson lacework of the sapwood that showed through the white bark was no brighter red than the mark of his blood-stained hands where they clung for support. End of chapter 7